Hello and welcome to the 30th episode of Talking New Retina, the official podcast of the European Society of Retina Specialists. I'm Jonathan McRae. In this podcast, we bring you expert discussions and interviews with leaders from the world of retina and beyond. We'll also keep you up to date with the latest news from the society. In this episode, we're going to be diving into the complex and fascinating world of intraocular lymphoma. It's a rare but potentially devastating disease that affects the eye, specifically the retina and the vitreous, and can not only impair vision, but uh, can also spread to other parts of the central nervous system. Early diagnosis and treatment are crucial to preserve vision and improve patient outcome. Before we get into it, though, Ms. Roxanne Hillier and Dr. George Caputo will chair the next Uretina educational webinar on May 10th. It's on challenging cases of vitreoretinal surgery, and they're going to cover two particularly challenging area, PVR and some paediatric cases. The webinar will be a mix of didactic presentations, cases and discussion, and the faculty include Dr. Koen van Overdam from the Rotterdam Eye Hospital in the Netherlands, and Professor Tom Williamson from St. Thomas's Hospital in London. So once again, an international faculty of key opinion leaders guiding us through some particularly tricky subjects. And that's on May 10th at the usual time of 8 p.m. Central Summer Time or 7 p.m. British Summer Time. Registration will be open soon on the Uretina website. So uh, as I mentioned, we're going to be looking at intraocular lymphoma in this episode. And we have an exceptional panel of retinal surgeons and ocular oncologists uh, who will be able to tell us how to better understand, diagnose and treat intraocular lymphoma. They are chaired by Ms. Hibba Kuhl, who's from uh, the Royal Hallamshire Hospital in Sheffield, where she's a consultant ocular oncologist. She's uh, joined by our faculty, Professor Carlos Pavezio from Moorfields Eye Hospital in London and Professor Mandeep Saigu of the same parish uh, of Moorfields Eye Hospital as well. So Hibba, it's fantastic to have you back on the programme and thank you so much for proposing this really interesting topic. I'll hand over to you. Thank you so much, Jonathan. It's a pleasure to be back. So whenever I speak to my retinal specialty colleagues about their topics of concern or interest, other than trying to work out which lesions are nevile melanomas, the number one topic is always vitreoretinal lymphoma. And to me, that makes perfect sense. This is a really rare disease. It represents, at some estimates, of only one in 10,000 of all ocular diagnoses. And it's a great masquerader. It can turn up in any general clinic and makes up approximately 1% of uveitis clinic referrals. But most importantly, of course, it's deadly due to its either synchronous or metachronous association with central nervous system lymphoma. So there's never been a better time to get a handle on this great masquerader. And to help me do this, I've invited two distinguished and esteemed colleagues from Moorfields Eye Hospital in London who have expertise on both sides of this conversation, one from the uveitis perspective and one from the ocular oncology perspective. Thank you both for joining me. I thought we could use a hypothetical patient to guide us on this journey in our talk through vitreoretinal lymphoma. Professor Sagu, as a fellow ocular oncologist, I know you're familiar with this type of presentation a middle-aged woman, perhaps in her 60s, with a new presentation of uveitis, who's seen a local general ophthalmologist with cells in her vitreous and aqueous. And that ophthalmologist goes, hey, could this be lymphoma? Mandy, what would be your approach to this kind of patient? So I think, uh, Hibbert, the the main point is in the history, I think. Uh, The alarm bell should uh, start ringing then that why would this 60-year-old be presenting for the first time with uh, a pan-uveitis? So I think Uh, That's where the the kind of alarm bells start ringing in the history itself. Uh, 
So new presentation in a uh, middle-aged or elderly patient of uveitis of this extent uh, is important. I think other features to talk about in the history are whether there's uh, any of the obvious uveitis type questions. So, uh, you know, things like exotic travel or pets and the usual uh, kind of inflammatory or infective trawl that, that one has to do. And then also to ask systemic symptoms. Uh, so to make sure that we know whether there are any neurological uh, developments or any general health type uh, problems, you know, presence of B type symptoms, although they're rare in uh, intraocular lymphoma or any associated systemic disease, it's still worth knowing their oncological uh, history as well. So I think I'd start with the, the history. And then in the uh, examination, I think, you know, when you look at the the surface of the eye in uveitis, you'll often see a, a ciliary flush, whereas in lymphoma, uh, the ciliary flush is absent. So it's a, a white looking eye rather than a red eye. And then uh, the vitreous cells and the aqueous cells are usually fairly copious, but without other inflammatory signs. So, uh, you know, you don't see posterior synechiae normally in lymphoma. And uh, the visual acuity can be uh, a clue. When you look in the eye, uh, there's often um, quite a lot of cells, but the visual acuity is better than expected for an equivalent uveitis. Uh, so th that's another uh, clue. And you have to try and put all these clues together. There's usually an absence of cystoid macular edema, either clinically or on OCT scan. And uh, you may see subretinal yellow infiltrates. Uh, which may be small ones, or they may be larger coalescent ones, which then have leopard spotting over the, the surface. So I think those are the kind of key features just from the history and the uh, initial examination. So let's imagine then it's less obvious than that. Perhaps it's a whitish eye. There mm -hmm. are cells, but they've not had that full uveitis workup. At what point mm. do you enlist the help of someone like Professor Pavesio? So early on, really. Uh, so I would ask Carlos to, uh, you know, see the patient and really to help rule out an inflammatory or infective cause. And so Carlos would then hopefully uh, give me the benefit of his uh, knowledge and uh, let me know whether he thinks it is inflammatory or infective or whether it looks more uh, neoplastic. And so there'd be ocular uh, tests that we would do. Uh, so the standard tests, OCT, autofluorescence, uh, all of these are important. Fluorescein and ICG can be important as well, sometimes just to rule out the infective and inflammatory things. Uh, for example, the absence of a, a, a leaky hot disc on fluorescein angiography is more indicative of lymphoma uh, rather than an inflammatory or infective cause. So you have to work as part of a team in this. And so I'd enlist the help of Carlos uh, quite early on. So let's imagine instead she was referred direct to you, Carlos. How would you approach this patient? Hiba, first, thank you for inviting me to join this uh, podcast with my dear friend, Professor Sagu. Yeah, I, I think we have had here uh, already, Mandeep was, was covering a lot of the ground in terms of the key features. The one thing that I say to everyone, because you are in uveitis clinic and the patient walking with cells, it doesn't mean they have uveitis. So you have to keep an open mind. Is that you're, as you go to a presentation, people talk about uveitis. Consequently, the case presented has to be uveitis. That is a potential 
pitfall of, of uh, the analysis. So the other thing to remember as well is even though the age is a factor in favor of thinking of um, a lymphoma, keep in mind lymphomas occur in younger patients as well. So it's not only in this group, of course, increases the chance, but we see so many times younger patients presenting with a, a lymphoma. So this is something important to consider in, in your different, in not your differential, but in your thinking process. I think the features that Mandeep mentioned in terms of usually a, a white eye, a, a not very symptomatic eye apart from potential visual symptoms, depending on, on what's happening inside the eye. But we'll keep in mind that the vitreoretinal lymphoma can present itself in many different ways. And, and some of these ways may be not very symptomatic. That's why the patients may take time to come to you. If the vitreous is primarily involved, yes, the vitritis will affect the vision. They will turn up very quickly complaining. But if it's just a subretinal infiltrate, that may not be noticeable very early on. It may take time for them to come in, in to attention, you know, and, and that, that is an important fact. I think the, uh, the issue of the, the, the anterior chamber reaction, which is usually not associated with synechia, as it said, but you can have keratic precipitates uh, on the endothelial. So that, that can be another source of confusion with uh, an, an inflammatory pathology. The vitreous cells, you don't see snowballs usually, you don't see groups of cells together. You see more uniform size cells in the vitreous, sometimes looks like a sheath of cells in the vitreous cavity, which is an important clue, especially if you look sometimes a bit more peripheral in your examination rather than just looking centrally. And of course, what Mandeep has already described, the presence of the subretinal lesions, of course, the amount, the size will, will vary depending on how long the problem has been going on for. Uh, but these are clinically important features. Mandeep described as well the importance of imaging. So the OCT today is an incredibly useful way of identifying where the cells are. So the subretinal location of the, the infiltrate is very, very typical. And, and of course, imaging traditionally with angiography, ICG or fluorescein, especially fluorescein, will give you the indication that even though the vitreous is full of cells, the vessels are not very leaky, there's no macular edema, the disc is not hot. So these are all alarming bells that this is not just an inflammatory problem, and we have to think beyond uh, inflammation in this case. The history, of course, important, how quickly this is developing, what symptoms the patient had, keep in mind that we are a tertiary center, both Mandeep and I, receive patients who have already been seen elsewhere. And sometimes these patients have been treated elsewhere. So when they come to you, it's been modified. What, what is happening in front of you now is not the way they presented. So getting a very good history of the early presentation, what happened to them at that stage, what happened with the treatment they received. You may find that in, in the vitreoretinal lymphoma, they may have a, an initial positive response to, for, for instance, a course of steroids, but that doesn't last. They start getting again symptom problems after that. So all these factors in terms of the uh, history of treatments they received or, of course, any other symptoms they may have systemically might you know, give you a clue uh, about what's happening here. So uh, I think this would be the take I'll have in, in analyzing the patients, how I would approach you know, clinical examination, history, of course, getting a good detail of the early presentation and imaging to support my findings. So, of course, let's assume that our history and our examination and imaging findings support possible lymphoma and have ruled out something else like an infectious uveitis. At what point do you start thinking you need intraocular fluid sampling? We know that from the point of view of, of needing evidence to treat patients with lymphoma, we need to get 
tissue. We need to get cells to be able to confirm that. So there are different ways of trying to get more evidence from the eye. I'll, I'll allow Professor Sagu to go further into that. Uh, but I think it, it, it getting a sample from the eye becomes essential for the diagnosis, for you to confirm the diagnosis and, and then proceed with management issues. Uh, sampling, of course, there are many issues to discuss about that, techniques to use, so uh, we can start talking that. But Mandeep, do you want to come in with, with your views about the sampling? Yeah, so I think so. I think, as you say, often um, the disease has been modified because uh, you know they've been treated either topically or even... Uh, you know, periocular, sometimes systemic steroids uh, often used in this scenario. So I think the first thing to do is to stop the steroids. And we like to do that for two weeks and then to sample the eye. And our preference is for a vitrectomy uh, because I think the yield is better. Uh, but you could do a, a fine needle aspirate from the vitreous. So that is possible. But we prefer a full vitrectomy. And then the yield is improved if there are those uh, subretinal yellow infiltrates to uh, take a subretinal aspirate, sometimes even a retinotomy uh, with an aspirate as well. Uh, the, the yields are often improved that way. And also managing patient expectations. I think you have to tell the patient that this is a difficult diagnosis to make, that we may need to do more than one biopsy to prove it because, uh, you know, Sometimes uh, one biopsy is not enough to uh, make the diagnosis. I think it's a, it's a very important point, this one that Mandeep just made. Uh, I think people sometimes feel that a first biopsy is negative, then then they already rule out the lymphoma, which is not correct. You, you may have to sample more. And, and I think it depends on the presentation. If the lymphoma is primarily vitreo infiltration, then your vitrectomy is likely to be successful. If it's primarily subretinal, then the vitrectomy is more likely to fail. And then you may need to go an aspiration or a biopsy in the histological sample, sampling of the eye. Uh, the other thing, you know, we, we, we haven't touched on that, but this IL-10, IL-6, uh, which is, is, is very widely used in many places. Unfortunately, we don't do that very much, but in many places, it's a, a very useful tool. Uh, it is not diagnostic, but highly suggestive if your IL-10 is very high in relation to IL-6. Uh, but it also depends on the amount of cells in the eye. If, if it's in the vitreous, a lot of cells, your IL-10, IL-6 is more likely to give you a positive response. But if it's subretinal predominantly, it's not going to be the same. So there's several, that's, that's why the test you know, is not a one test apart from biopsy that makes the diagnosis because the others will be circumstantial evidence and, and the clinical picture and, and the, some samples will give you a benefit, but if you don't find the cells, if you don't demonstrate cells, it's, it's uh, of course uh, more difficult to convince uh, for the treatment to go ahead. And, and of course, uh, something that uh, Mandeep, I'll let you talk about it because you probably can expand much more is is, is the genetic side of, of mm. testing. You know, that's another aspect uh, that I think is important to to touch on. Sure. Uh, so there is a relatively new genetic test for the MYD88. Uh, gene. Uh, and there's a particular mutation, the L265P mutation, which is present in uh, quite a lot of cases of vitroretinal lymphoma. And uh, that protein, the MYD88, is involved in the innate immune system. And so quite a few papers now have shown uh, that um, doing a, a tap, uh, even from the aqueous, can give you uh, this genetic test. And it's a uh, 
uh, an indicator of a loss of a tumor suppressor, the CDKN2A and the PTEN uh, tumor suppressors. And so this seems to be a fairly good test of, of vitreoretinal lymphoma. And whether or not you can use that to a diagnostic level depends on um, the experience that you have locally, whether uh, your uh, lab is good enough, uh, you know, has enough experience, I should say, to uh, be able to uh, rely on that test and whether the hemato-oncologists are willing to take that as a diagnostic test. So many uh, hemonc uh, doctors do not take that as a diagnostic test, but as an indicator like the IL-10 to IL-6 ratio and would prefer to have uh, cytology as the kind of gold standard. Uh, so it depends a little bit on, on local expertise, but this test is coming and I think it is uh, quite useful, particularly in those grey cases that we see between Professor Pavesio and, and myself, where we're not sure whether it's lymphoma or not. You know, the biopsy, the, the vitreous tap and, and biopsy hasn't really shown anything. And then if you get a MYD88 uh, mutation, then that really swings you more towards this being lymphoma, and you might then uh, be prompted to do a second biopsy more quickly. So uh, I think um, it hasn't gained universal acceptance because the technology is new, but I think it will be very helpful uh, in the future. So let's imagine for our generalist retinal colleagues that perhaps don't have direct access to an ocular oncologist, they're probably going to enlist the help of their local vitreoretinal surgeon and request that vitrectomy to try and get that gold standard tissue cytology diagnosis. Would you advocate where facilities allow them doing all of those barrage of tests looking for the IL ratios and the gene analyses if they have it? Or is it worth just looking for cytology first and taking it from there? So I think probably cytology first, uh, because that's easily available to most of us. Uh, so I think that would be, and that's also the gold standard. And if you prove it on that, then uh, really uh, all the other tests just help you confirm that diagnosis. I think that's my view, but uh, Carlos? Yeah, I agree. No, I agree entirely. I think especially considering a lot of these tests are going to be difficult to do anyway in, in other places. So uh, cytology with a vitreoretinal surgeon can easily get the sample. The key thing here is how you handle that sample. So Mandeep already mentioned a very important point is the stopping the steroid before. So two weeks is the minimum. I think we should stop. If longer, better, but two weeks is the minimum time. Uh, taking a very good sample, so your VR colleague can very well take a good sample with a full vitrectomy. And processing the sample is so important, is how quickly you get this in the right hands, let's put it that way. So you can do all that trouble of getting the sample, then you leave it sitting around for a while, and then you send it to the pathology lab, and then um, it gets their all necrotic stuff that, that nobody can say what it was when it, it was in, in a better shape. So uh, I think it, it's, a, it's a, a real coordination of having the facility to do the vitrectomy, but not only that, because if you cannot process the sample, it's best to send the patient to another location where the sample can be taken and the material processed immediately. So this gives you the best chance. It's a situation when you, you're going with an invasive procedure to make a diagnosis, you want to maximize your chances of making the diagnosis with that one procedure you're doing. We made a point before that you may have to resample a few times, and it, it's not uncommon that the diagnosis is delayed in, in lymphoma exactly because several 
procedures are required, but uh, you need to increase your chances by exactly correcting some steps rather than just uh, going ahead quickly and then finding that you wasted everything. And I think the important um, uh, addition to that is talk to your pathologist because the pathologist will tell you how they want the sample and how quickly they want it and what medium to send it in. So some pathologists will want it within minutes uh, and fresh, unfixed. Other pathologists will say, no, you can fix it in formalin or some other uh, cytological fixative. So check with your pathologist. So at Moorfields, we are able to fix it in formalin and send it in, uh, you know, in a normal way, uh, fairly quickly, but, uh, you know, not within 10 minutes. Uh, whereas, um, you know, in some centres, you virtually have to have the pathologist on standby as you take the sample and someone walks it around to the lab immediately. So it's really important to involve your pathologist and, and, and know what they want. and That maximises your chances as well. It really is a multidisciplinary management program when you have these types of patients. And thinking in that, those veins, at what point would you consider central nervous system radiology imaging? Would you think of that if they're presenting with purely eye symptoms? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm sure Mandeep will, will stretch further on that. But uh, I think it's one of the things we, we immediately think about as soon as we, we suspect a lymphoma in the eye, uh, a primary, which a retinal lymphoma, then your attention is straight to the brain. And, and I think even before you, you can confirm your ocular diagnosis, I think we're already getting this patient seen for imaging of the brain because this, this becomes a more pressing and important problem. Uh, I think the level is the level of suspicion of the eye is uh, a vitreoretinal lymphoma. Then I would not be waiting too long to get this patient's uh, imaged uh, uh, from the, the brain point of view. I think I, I tend to send them very quickly. Your yeah, the converse of that is that you could image a lot of people with uveitis uh, with brain scans. So you kind of, you know, have to temper that. As you say, we're a tertiary center, so we're going to see the more. Um, you know, the more suspicious cases, uh, whereas in your general uh, ophthalmic department or, uh, you know, general retinal clinic, you might be overordering. So I think one good indicator is, um, uh, you know, whether they've got neurological symptoms. So that's something that I go by. So if they have any kind of neurological symptoms, then absolutely you have to go for getting... Um, the neuroimaging done. Otherwise, if they haven't, I tend to go for the, uh, the the vitreoretinal biopsy first and see what that shows. And then in parallel, you can start organizing the, the MRI scan of the brain. But I, I wouldn't delay the biopsy over the MRI scan, let's put it that way. And I think neurological symptoms for me are good because if, you, if you've diagnosed it, then they're going to have staging with a hemato-oncologist. So the brain scan will be done. But if they've got neurological symptoms, then and you pick up the lymphoma that way, then I think, um, uh, you know, then you can make the decision whether uh, the intracranial lymphoma could be biopsied more easily. I just want to qualify my previous statement. I, I'm not using the MRI as a screening for this. Uh, I'm actually saying to you, if I suspect very highly that what I see in the eye is a lymphoma, then I, I would probably organize, as you say, in parallel to organizing the biopsy and do it as quickly as possible. But definitely, I wouldn't be organizing a, an MRI for uh, cases I, I have a low level of suspicion 
uh, Omelin Fum. I think it's, it's the less qualified that so he doesn't get confused out there when people are listening to this, <laughs> think, oh, Pavensu is organizing MRIs for everyone. No, I'm not. I'm not doing that. I'm, I'm actually organizing for those individuals who I really feel very strongly they have a lymphoma in the eye from the clinical features. And if, if I agree with you, the biopsy comes as a priority to confirm the diagnosis, but alongside that, I'm already organizing for the, the imaging to be done. I wonder if I might just pick up on something Mandeep said about the neurological symptoms. Which sort of neurological symptoms for you give you a, a, an indication that CNS lymphoma may be present? Or is it much more global than that? It, it can be anything. So I once picked up a, a, a CNS uh, lymphoma from a symptom of uh, the tongue having a tingling sensation. That's what the patient told me. And, uh, you know, we were suspecting vitroretinal lymphoma. We were organizing the biopsy and all of that. And when I asked about all the different, uh, uh, you know, symptoms, the only thing that patient had was tingling in the tongue. And wow. we picked up an intracranial lymphoma just from that. Excellent. So let's get back to our patient then. So our 60-year-old, let's assume she's had her vitrectomy and we were lucky enough to get um, cytological proof of a diffuse large cell uh, B-cell lymphoma. Where do we go next? What are our next steps? I assume for you, Carlos, if you've got the result in uveitis land, it would be referral to Mandy. Absolutely. Immediately. So I think it's a situation then we... we my role in this case is here will be exactly what Mandeep said at the beginning. Now, I, I'm, I'm reassuring him that I don't think this is inflammatory from my, my perspective. That is enough there to suspect the lymphoma, that for us to organize everything is done. The moment the diagnosis is made, is confirmed, then, of course, we, we are totally in the hands of Professor Sagu here to uh, define the best course of action in terms of management. So we... Oh, my intervention usually stops at the moment the diagnosis is made, and uh, I then uh, immediately get them back to Mandeep for for the um, management side. Yeah, and so um, in ocular oncology, then uh, you have to be part of a multidisciplinary team with your um, your medical oncologist or your hemato oncologist. And if the imaging hasn't already been done, that's the first thing they'll do is to do staging and see whether there is any concurrent uh, intracranial disease or any other sign of, of lymphoma. So uh, that's really important. And then they'll help you decide on treatment. And again, this is subject to local protocols. And there's a, a range of, of treatments here. So if there's no brain disease, then uh, you might just do uh, intraocular treatment. And that is often with intravitreal methotrexate. Uh, which works very well at resolving the intraocular lymphoma. And then with the brain, because, you know, two-thirds or more than two-thirds of patients will get intracranial disease, uh, you can then just screen them for that and treat it when it happens. The other way, which is uh, the way that our protocol is in London, is that we give systemic chemotherapy, and uh, that's uh, based on methotrexate and cytarabine. And then um, our oncologists then will make a decision whether uh, there should be radiotherapy to the eyes as well. And sometimes they will give uh, some radiotherapy to the brain as well. Now, that can be a little bit controversial because uh, brain radiotherapy causes cognitive impairment in some patients, particularly the elderly. And so they have to make a, a decision on that, whether 
um, it's necessary to, to do that. So younger patients tend to get it, older patients tend not to, uh, to get it because of that cognitive uh, impairment risk. And then once the treatment is done, then uh, the uh, medical oncologists will keep a check on their systemic condition and their intracranial condition, and we in ocular oncology will undertake surveillance of the eyes. And uh, we we would see them every kind of initially every couple of months, and then we make it a bit longer. And each time they come to the ophthalmic clinic, it's worth asking about neurological symptoms in case there's anything new that you need to flag up to the medical oncologist. And then imaging helps you monitor the response to treatment. And we may well, in some centers, uh, some of my, my colleagues rely on IL-10 to IL-6 ratios to see whether uh, there's uh, any active lymphoma. And we may well switch to MYD88 mutations in the future. That That is on the horizon, I think. And so do you think all treated vitreoretinal lymphoma patients should stay under ocular oncology? Or can yes. they go back to their retinal well, I mean, it depends on local protocol. So uh, some uh, retinal specialists don't feel comfortable uh, looking after, uh, you know, vitro-retinal uh, lymphoma patients, uh, whereas others are comfortable. So it's, I think, dependent on local expertise. But, you know, we offer that service that if, uh, you know, the local team uh, want to refer back to us, that's okay. If they want to share care, that's okay as well. So you can alternate visits and so on. Uh, but always be ready to at least review the images from the uh, the local center and see if there's any sign of relapse. The if there is, want... yeah, sorry. Sorry, Mandy, but just say the, the on this point here of uh, who's going to follow the patient is, is access to the expert, isn't it? Is how easy it is. You know, we, we are lucky we have Mandeep in the building uh, and uh, in, in countries like the UK, which is not a very large country, uh, it is easy to find several centers where care can be provided. But imagine very large countries where there are not many oncologists around. Uh, so you may have to see potentially the retinal people uh, actually uh, uh, monitoring. That happens in uveitis as well. A lot of patients, uveitis patients are followed up by retinal specialists because it's not a uveitis specialist in each corner. So it's, 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 not, uh, it's not easy to get that support. Oh. So I, I think the, 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 the retinal specialists will be able at least to monitor if uh, hopefully, if, if they can see any changes uh, in, in what's happening in the eye, and then immediately in that case, communicate back to the oncology team and say something is changing, something is happening, uh, and, and we need you back. Uh, but it is, uh, we, we're very, let's say, spoiled here with the fact that we have access so easily. So uh, it makes life very simple. But we can imagine that in other places it may not be that easy. Fantastic. So to draw this to a close, thank you so much for all of your insights and your expertise. But if there was one pearl you'd like our listeners to take away today about vitreoretinal lymphoma, what would it be? Should we start with you, Carlos? I think it's, it's the clinical features are making you think that this doesn't look like a simple inflammation, that there's something fishy about what this, this eye looks like. Think that potentially that is not inflammatory cells in the eye these are an infiltration and, and then the task is on to uh, find out what is infiltrating that eye so uh, everything we said before uh, examine the eye properly take a good history and if it doesn't look like inflammation just start thinking what else could it be and and then it comes into the realm of of the infiltration and and potentially the lymphoma mandeep uh, so, uh, apart from having Carlos on speed dial, 
would be, uh, I think, um, you know, have the high index of suspicion and plan the biopsy properly. Uh, so involve all the other team members, the pathologist, even the hemato-oncologist, if you need input from them, your vitro-retinal colleagues, if they're helping you with the uh, biopsy and uh, handling the specimen and so on. So I think that is probably the biggest pearl, stopping the steroids and getting the biopsy done uh, efficiently. Okay, Mike, one final comment, if I may, is we are very good at recognizing things if you think about them. So if you have diseases in your mind, you think lymphoma is a possibility, you become alert to it. It's the same thing with many other conditions. You know, you think about syphilis, oh yeah, it could be syphilis. We think about syphilis, we test for it. But if you don't think about the condition, you're already eliminating that from your from your repertoire of, of differential diagnosis. So be minded that uh, cells in the eye may not necessarily be only inflammation. That's wonderful. Thank you so very much. Thank you, Iba. Thank you, Mandeep. Thanks, Iba. Thank you, Carlos. Well done, everyone. That was great. Uh, really concise and clear exploration of intraocular lymphoma. I hope you enjoyed it and got something out of it. Do let us know if you'd like more topics like this. Uh, thanks to our chair, Ms. Hiba Kuhl, uh, Professor Carlos Pavezio, and Professor Mandeep Saigu, our faculty members. That's it from this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. As we say, do let us know if you have comments, complaints, criticisms, or uh, you would like to suggest something, you can email us podcast at uretina.org. I'm Jonathan McRae, and I'll see you next time on Talking Uretina.